Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Acts, the book of Acts. Acts chapter 14, that's page 923 in the Bible provided for you. You're welcome to take that Bible home, by the way, if you, you didn't have one and maybe didn't come with one and don't have one, we're happy to put a copy of the Word of God in your hands to take home. Well, are we there yet? Some things kids say, I'm sure, get taught on the playground. Um, the little hand clap thing that the girls do. I don't think adults are teaching that to children. I think the children are teaching that to each other down generations on the playground. Are we there yet? I just think they think of that question. I think that just comes out in just that way. And it's a bit of a silly question because why are they asking? Because we're not there yet. It's almost like maybe by magic and the question will be there. Or maybe it's a sick kind of strange negotiation where maybe the universe will meet them halfway and the, the time will get a little bit shorter. Well, we're in the middle of a series titled Mile Markers for the Mission. That is the church's great commission from Jesus, our our global mission, and it is an exciting end to which we are driving and place to which we are going. We have a vision of that which we've sung about and at the end of our Bibles when all the nations are surrounding Jesus and worshiping Him and all is right. All is right. But unlike that car ride, for us, for the church, the journey the road may be grueling at times, but it is no less exciting. Last week, Mark Vowles preached for us on that first mile marker, proclamation. We have to get the gospel and the good news to the nations. And that may take Bible translation. That certainly takes preachers getting there and heralding and announcing the good news. What comes next? Well, for that, we turn now to Acts chapter 14. I'll read verses 19 through 28. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went with Barnabas to Derbe. And, there, and uh, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. When they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word to Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, 
they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. Well, on any journey, there are sites along the road. Our family has lived in some different places over the years and we vacation in different places over the years. A trip to or from New Mexico is going to have a certain atmosphere to it. I used to joke when we'd make the, we used to live in New Mexico, when we'd make the journey out of New Mexico into Texas or from Texas into New Mexico, it was as though when you entered New Mexico, you entered a country western set. And if you've been to that lovely state, you'll know what I mean. There's nothing quite like it. A trip to Michigan is different. Northern Illinois is different than central Illinois. And a trip to the coast of the Carolinas is its own thing and has its own beauty. Well, on the page here, we have no shortage of locations. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, back to Iconium and Antioch, Pisidia, Pamphylia, Perga, Italia, back to Antioch. Uh, geography is a big deal. There's movement from place to place to place and different, different scenery. You have cities and you have rural places. You have Greeks and you have barbarians. You have progressive environments and backwards places. Perga would have been a capital and a culturally sophisticated city. Very different from Lystra, which would have been more shall we say, backwards. And as it seems a little crazy, even the day before, there was a miraculous healing on Paul's part, and they had in this place, Lystra, where they were, uh, been treated as a god. But from Antioch and Ecomium, Jews came down and, and poisoned the people against Paul. Not that he wanted worship, he did not, but he received a favorable welcome. And the crowds turned and the city turned in a day to kill him. They thought they had killed him and drug him out of the city and left him for the birds. We have different sights on the journey. Well, the church's global mission allows for all kinds of creativity and imagination in terms of where we will take the gospel and where we end up. And as diverse and as beautiful as the world's geography and peoples are, Christians make themselves to every place. But on the other hand, there is the same old, same old, regardless of where we go. There is a particular work that we are to be about. The same work in every place. And if last week we offered the mile marker of proclamation as that first mile marker, this is just an image to help think about the work that we're assigned by our Lord. Well, this week we asked the question, after proclamation, what is the work of missions? After proclamation, what is the work of missions? And there are all kinds of answers suggested and on offer out there. Books and movements and conferences and literature. Maybe proclamation is just one of many things the church is to be about. So in whatever order, there's proclamation and there's caring for the poor and there's 
There's dealing with unjust governmental structures and societal norms. And so one might suggest there's proclamation and then there's transforming the the culture. And we know that transformation of the culture happens as the people of God are renewed and and speak a word concerning sin and judgment to the world around us. But in terms of the church's global mission, her commission from Jesus, some might say that we're to go and proclaim along with other things like transforming communities and, and offering clean water, which may have its place in a strategy situated the right way. But, but for some, the mission is clean water and the mission is community health. Bringing about the kingdom of God through, through humanitarian means. Maybe another answer is to make lots of disciples and then to gather them together in Bible studies and to create movements of disciple making and to find ways to configure disciple making and Bible studies for rapid multiplication. Maybe another answer is to make disciples and then, and then to appoint indigenous pastors as soon as possible and then to get out of the way Because Western missionaries are very expensive. Better not to spend ourselves there too long. As it is, there are people to reach. So we we make disciples and then we create a church, appoint indigenous leaders, and, and we're on. Stay as out of the way as possible. Be only engaged as much as absolutely necessary. And then another approach might be... Maybe not so much by philosophy, by, but by what happens is to make disciples and establish a church and then to pastor that church until we die. And so maybe there's some leadership development, but ultimately the, the leadership and the pastoring and the teaching is done by the missionary without any plans to conclude that work and hand it off. So after proclamation... What is the church's work in her global mission? It's a very important question. And thankfully, we're a people under authority. So we have a commission from Jesus. We are sent. We we are told to make disciples of all the nations. And there's a little more to that verse, which we'll get into. And Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth to give us this commission. And he sends us with his Authority, and he, and he gives us more than merely the end, but he gives us the means and the methodology as well. And so one way of trusting Jesus with our lives and our work and the mission is not only to trust him with the goal, but the, the means. And so that's what this series is partly intended to do. Uh, some sermons on global missions may be especially helpful for energizing the church and catapulting us to do sacrificial and risk-taking things. Well, another type of sermon, and the kind that I is, I'm at least as excited about, is this kind of sermon, which is a clarifying kind of sermon. It's to see that all of our zeal and energy is taking us to the right target, to the right destination. Lest in our zeal and our compassion and our big-hearted Christian love, we, we don't get the job done. Let us get the job done. 
So what comes after proclamation? Our answer to that question will affect our prayers, how we pray. There's prayer happening in and through this passage we've read. It affects our plans. There were plans to go to this city and then to that and to return. It affects those with whom we partner. This this whole passage happens in the context of a partnership. The church at Antioch, we begin there and they, they end there. Uh, we begin there at the beginning of chapter 13, excuse me. It's mentioned at the head of this chapter. Church of Antioch was the first sending church for the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. It is a kind of paradigm for the work. So what comes after proclamation in the work of the church's global mission? Well, I want to answer that in one way, but with two parts, and then argue for it, and then analyze it a bit. I want to answer it this way. It is to make disciples and plant churches. It's to make disciples and plant churches. And if you thought that's too easy, it's, it's so obvious, this sermon will be boring. Well, remember all of the suggestions that I offered to you before, that the church, that our local church is really, really clear on what a disciple is and and what a church is, will make the difference for the missionaries that we raise up, the, the children, the young people, even from our midst, college students, you, if you're to go out. We'll, we'll go out from this place to do. We'll be shaped by our answer to the question, what is a disciple? What's a Christian and what's, what's a church? And is that the work? Yes, it is the work, which, I will, which I'll argue for. And I'll put, we put these things together. Look at here in verse 20, 21. When they'd preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, so there's proclamation of the good news, the announcement of the good news, and they had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. Now, are these disciples disconnected disciples. It's plural. Are they floaters? They returned to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. So they'd moved on after making disciples, returning to Antioch and those other places, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they'd believe. So there you go. He, he doesn't even say made disciples and then planted churches. He said made disciples and when they'd appointed elders for them in all the churches in these towns, then they committed them to the Lord and moved on. In other words, churches are assumed. Now there's a difference between a disciple and planting a church and making a disciple. We're, we're proclaiming the gospel to individuals who have to individually, personally, Repent and believe, and God saves individuals. But as he does that, it is his intention and his work of his spirit to gather disciples into local churches. And they happen so closely together, it's worth answering what happens after proclamation with the simple answer, an answer with two parts, to make disciples and plant churches. This is the pattern that we see on the page here. 
And this is the right place to be in our Bibles to get a, a sharp narrative story picture of what it actually means to fulfill the Great Commission among the nations. Because this is the apostles who have taken their charge from the Lord Jesus, that charge that we have, putting it to work and getting about it. So what they go to do and when they leave off doing it is a good indication to us of what we ought to be doing and how to conceive of our work. Luke chapter 24, you can turn there with me. It is just a few books back, two books back. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then, according to Luke, and he also wrote the book of Acts, so we're in his territory here. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus is preaching the Gospel from the Old Testament Scriptures, verse 44. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me and the law and Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then he said this to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And so here is Jesus giving a commission to his disciples. You'll be witnesses. And he's speaking to them and preaching to them from the Old Testament concerning himself. But not just himself. That the scriptures prophesied that the Messiah would die and be raised. But that also repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. And this is that mystery that's, that's coming together now. That Abraham was promised children like the stars of the sky, but that through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Families of the earth would be blessed. We have a story that began in the garden with Adam representing all of humanity, and a Messiah comes to represent a new humanity made up of all tribes and languages and nations. It's all coming together for them, in part because Jesus is opening their minds not to see things that aren't there, but to understand the scriptures as they are actually revealed. And in the book of Acts, what we have is the story of what Jesus did next. As he sent his spirit, look at verse 49 of Luke 24, and behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. And so they did. And as the Spirit came, what happened next? The church was born. 3,000 souls added, baptized, and added to the church that day. And the church began meeting around the apostles, teaching and breaking bread together and sharing the gospel. Back to the book of Acts, chapter 14. We were just in Luke, and Matthew 28 is not much different. You'll be familiar with the commission that Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded. 
So that's more than just making disciples. If Luke is saying, preach the gospel to all the nations and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins, he shows you what that entailed and what that created in the book of Acts. And in what we call the Great Commission from Jesus, we're to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. That baptism isn't merely an individual decision, but it is something that the church is to decide to do with the disciples that they make, because baptism is that way in which a new Christian and the church go public together that this one is with Christ. That's why we speak, and Scripture speaks, of being baptized not only into Christ, but into His body. Baptism, in other words, church membership. Make disciples, preach the gospel, and see, see men and women converted, and then church. Do church. Plant churches. Baptizing them. And there's a little bit more, which we'll actually see on the page here. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. Nurtured. Healthy, strong, mature, reproducing churches. So that's why I answer this in one question with two parts. The pattern that we see in the apostles' ministry here that Luke is holding out for us in Acts 14 is but the outworking of what we have heard Jesus say to us before he ascended to his father. Well, what do we mean by disciple-making and church planting? Or specifically, what is a disciple and what is a church? Well, a disciple is one with a clear confession of Christ. Verse 23 here, with prayer and fasting, they committed them, that church, to the Lord in whom they had believed. So here is a church of Disciples who had believed in the Lord. They believed the promise of Scripture. They believed Jesus is the Messiah, that he died and that he rose again and that he is alive and ascended at his Father's right hand. Not that he is like like one of many prophets, but that he is unique and that all the prophets have testified about him and to him and he is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. And he is our only hope in life and in death. They committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. In verse 27, Paul and Barnabas are back at Antioch and speaking of what God has done and how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. There's a certain, there's a certain content, a body of faith that is believed by faith that is proclaimed as we call men and women to repent and to believe. So there's a certain clear confession, a defined confession of Christ. There's also a defined commitment that is natural to those who have the Spirit. We are not made all that we will be in the new creation as soon as we are saved or converted or believe. But there is a real transformation that leads, for example, verse 20, when the disciples gathered about him, gathered about Paul, having Paul after he had been stoned, killed with stones, and dragged out of the city. They supposed he was dead. He wasn't. And perhaps the disciples assumed he was dead, but they go out to him. They go out to him because this is the apostle. This is Jesus' sent one. Jesus' messenger. And if Paul had just been attacked and, and presumed to have been killed and dragged out of the city... 
Would not going to him mark you with him and his cause and the Christ he preached? This is really quite something. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. It's about as miraculous as as Paul getting up and then going back into the city of all things to do. And of course, Paul in verse 22 will strengthen the disciples' souls. They and we need it. Encourage them to continue. They need to hear it. Continue, continue. Coming to church on Sunday is, is for a lot of things. And maybe we could boil it down to Jesus is Lord. Continue in the faith. And we need to hear it. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Which is to say difficulty and hardship and costs of discipleship are normal, normal for following Jesus in discipleship. And to the extent that we don't experience hardship, that is, that is abnormal. One might suggest that Christianity doesn't have any cultural or, let's say, political implications. And yet, Just by way of observation, there has to be some kind of reason why Christianity is banned in in all communist countries. You see, Christians testify to the way that things are. There is a transcendent authority to which all governments and rulers and powers are ultimately accountable There is an objective morality. There is a moral structure to the universe. It really is wrong to murder and to kill unborn babies. There is a fixed human nature. Human nature is not malleable, changeable, perfectible by societal structures. We are sinful, though made in God's image. We are men or we are Women, are you picking up what I'm putting down? These are cancelable claims. These are basic claims. These are claims we can't not make in love for for neighbor. In our own context, we have our own challenges and costs. And what we are doing in taking the gospel to the end of the earth is asking men and women in different cultures who may not know any other Christians to leave father and mother and forsake all and lose their jobs for his sake. That's what we're asking people to do. Because Jesus is worth it. And there is a God in heaven. And there is an answer to sin and death and guilt. A clear confession of Christ. And a defined commitment that is natural to those born of the Spirit who have repented and believed in Him. Well, what is a church? Well, a similar and a two-part answer. A people with a defined confession. That is a confession of who Christ is. They committed them to the Lord in whom they, plural, had believed. You don't need to turn there with me, but I'm, I'm going to turn to a few places in the book of Matthew. Where Matthew was instructing us on this very thing in the way he composed his, his gospel. Jesus says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And of course, there are many answers that the disciples offer, things that they're hearing. And Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, he doesn't know all that he's saying, and he doesn't know the full import of what exactly he did say, but he's exactly right. And Jesus affirms this, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus isn't just building disciples, he's building his church. And he's doing it, minimally this would mean, on the confession that Peter just made concerning who Christ is, who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So there's a defined confession on which Jesus is building his church. There's also a defined community, a commitment one to another, not just to our Lord. And in Matthew 18, we find a verse that helps us here, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And you say, what is the church? It's where two or three are gathered. Well, we get it from that Bible verse. But Bible verses have a context, and this verse has a context. This verse comes after that passage you may be familiar with for what we're to do when we sin against each other. Has that happened? Has that happened here? Does that happen in your life? Do you get sinned against by church members, family members who know the Lord? We go one-on-one to them to seek to win them. We don't air it in front of the whole family and, and tell everybody else what somebody has done. No, we go to them because we, we desire restoration and we want them to repent of sin because they've sinned against the Lord. But if they dig in and refuse to repent, then we bring a a few witnesses to confirm what we're seeing. And and if they refuse then, then we we tell the church because to be a part of a church is not not a, a merely individual thing, but it's a public and it's a corporate thing. And we're online and public together as those who name Jesus as Lord. And so if someone by behavior persistently through unrepentance says Jesus is not Lord and acts in a way that a Christian must not and cannot act over time when pursued and called to repentance, then the church puts that individual out of the church and treats them as an unbeliever and now evangelizes them. You're familiar with that passage. If you've been in church a bit, it's from Matthew 18. If church and Christianity is new to you, this is an interesting passage to to see how it is that Christians are to deal with each other as we sin against each other, which, which we surely do. My point in offering this passage to you is that this is the context in which that verse about one or two, two or three happens. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Loose on earth is loosed in heaven. I say to you, if you agree on earth about anything and ask, it will be done by them and my Father in heaven. This has to do with identifying who's a member, and for, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am among them. In other words, this is talk, to the two or three here is the context of the church where there's clear membership and discipline. So there's a, a clear confession of Christ that a church must have. The preaching of the gospel must be the only saving gospel there is, or you don't have a church. If I preach another gospel, address me. That's your command from the word in Galatians. If I preach another gospel and we don't turn from that and preach the the only saving gospel, then find another church. This isn't even a church. You can't have a church unless you can answer the question, what makes men and women right with God? 
and unless you have God's only answer to that question. Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But you also, to have a church, have to have a defined commitment. That is, membership and, and discipline. We belong to one another. And that, of course, is illustrated and pictured through the signs of the covenant, through baptism into one body, and through the Lord's Supper, that sign we repeat over and over again by which we say we belong to Christ and one another and remember his death until he returns, among other things that the signs are doing. So what is a disciple and what is a church? Crucial questions, and maybe it hasn't occurred to you, but missionaries need more than big hearts and a willingness to give all and sacrifice and go. They need to be theologians, and as we might say, ecclesiologians. Ecclesia is that word for church in the Bible. They need to be experts on the church and what a church is. Hobbyists, nerds about what makes a church, what makes a Christian, and how do I know? And so if you have sensed the Lord leading you and directing you to the mission field, you need to be about all kinds of things diligently, including including making a, a meaningful study of what the church is and how the church works on the basis of the word of God. For this is that next mile marker in the mission, without which there is no accomplishing the mission. If you want to not fulfill the Great Commission and see Jesus' Great Commission never fulfilled, which is a merely hypothetical suggestion, uh, because he will fulfill it. Make disciples, but don't make church. Make lots of disciples everywhere, as many as you can. Fund disciple making, go and make disciples, and do not establish churches that will make disciples and establish churches. The mission will die in a generation. The church is the means and the goal of the Great Commission. The work of global missions flows to the local church. It creates local churches and it flows from local churches. And all of this among the nations. You notice in verse 27, they report how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So, just a point of clarification, which we've made in previous years at other times. The church's great commission from Jesus isn't merely to make as many disciples as possible. Otherwise, it makes no sense to spend our best people and send our great money into far-flung places in order to see one or some saved among the nations in our lifetime. How much more sense does it make to spend as much energy as we can right here where it's a lot easier to preach? No, this is a commission to reach the nations and make disciples among the nations and baptize among the nations, which is why the report here is how the Lord opened a door of faith, not among people, but to the Gentiles. So that's what happens after proclamation, disciple-making and church planting. Well, the next question, what will this require of the church? Well, I have four answers to that question for you. And by the way, we're, we're a good bit through the sermon. So each point here won't have the same length as the last. 
Sometimes I'll ask, how could that sermon be better? Well, we were so far in and I was very nervous that it would go for hours. And you realize pretty much it was a great sermon except all I needed to do was tell them where we're at. So that's where we're at. What will this require of the church? In the first place, it will require missionaries who will keep going. Who will keep going. The Apostle Paul gets back up and he goes back into the city. Now he has plans to move on. But that's not the first place I would have gone. The disciples go out to him. There is a grit. There is a grittiness to the work. There is an expectation of hardship. He doesn't go back home after it gets hard. The work of making disciples is disruptive work. We're calling people to turn from those idols that they have trusted to the living Christ. So implications for our prayers. Well, we should pray for strength for those whom we send and encouragement. If Paul is telling these early disciples that they have made in Lystra to remember that it's through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God, we need to pray that for those whom we send that they would not forget that it's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God. They get strength through the promise that they will enter the kingdom of God through their own endurance empowered by God's grace. And so that's how it can affect our prayers, this truth that missionaries must keep going. What about our plans? We ought to plan to raise our young people to be the kind of people whom the Spirit might send if He wills. And there's a certain way to raise a kid that makes it miraculous that he would or she would head for the ends of the earth because of how easy Life can be in this place. So much to thank God for there. But we must raise our kids to be able to do hard things. And in terms of partnerships, we must set our attention on and cheerlead for and partner with those who are good for this kind of suffering, who expect it and are ready for it. Missionaries with a good theology of the mission will understand this. Second, what will this require of the church? Missionaries who will keep going and missionaries who know what they are going to do. Verses 21 and 23. Notice that they preached the gospel to that city and and had made many disciples... And then returning to these other places that they had already been in those other places where they had preached the gospel and made disciples, presumably also established churches. What did they do? Strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue and and exhorted them. This theme of strength circling back to strengthen churches is a recurring theme in the book of Acts. So we see that there is proclamation There is disciple-making and church planting. And it's more than just disciple-making and church starting, but seeing churches to health. Paul had a concern to circle back and check in on how they were doing and to see that they were okay. And then to appoint elders for them in every church. 
Now, you had a church before you had elders. But to have a properly led church, to have a truly healthy church, a properly ordered church, you need elders. Spiritual leaders who hold this office appointed, in this case it appears by the apostles, although this language of appointed could include that of the ascent of the congregation. It, I, I, there are reasons and arguments to be made that this is happening in coordination with the church, but it's not, it's not a given. In any case, the church needs elders, and the apostles see that elders are appointed in every church. And then what? And then with prayer and fasting, they commit them to the Lord. We need missionaries who know what they are going to do to proclaim the gospel, to make disciples, and to plant churches. And this affects our prayers for them. And so we should pray for reproducing indigenous churches with godly, qualified leadership elders who are able to teach the word and and do these things the apostles were doing, able to strengthen the souls of the church and encourage them to continue and, and who teach them concerning suffering and the work to which Jesus has called us. It affects our plans in our global mission together. We plan for the long haul. We aren't giddy and jumpy for numbers and exciting stories that can make us feel like we're accomplishing something. There are lots of churches who feel very accomplished and faithful in global missions, and who knows if they are? Who would know if we are? We have to know what faithfulness is, and this kind of faithfulness requires time in order to see its fruit. But in terms of our plans, we pray for and are at work in partnership with the farmers among the Riyamalayu, and Lord willing, one day we will send another church planting team down there. There isn't an established church among the Riyamalayu. We believe there are some converts, there are some Bible studies, but when there is an established church, there will need to be the work of strengthening the church and instructing the church, seeing that the church is properly led by people from within the church and that the church is about its own work so that the missionary can move on. It affects our partnerships, that we would partnership with, partner with those who are committed to this very vision of the church being central to God's mission, the goal and the means of carrying out the mission. Oh, there will be missionaries in the field who have different focuses, foci, focus, who are focused on different parts of the work. Maybe one especially engaged in evangelism. Maybe others in the work of establishing a church. Maybe others in pastor training. But all, all of those whom we support must be working on this spectrum and toward this goal. There's no such thing as a, a hired disciple maker who is not working for the establishment of healthy reproducing indigenous churches. Our own aim as we've expressed it as a church and our global mission is to proclaim Christ in order to establish reproducing indigenous churches among the world's least reached peoples. There may be a different focus for one supported worker or another, but this is the work. 
And even on teams, there may be different roles. For example, Anna Gross will hear from her next week, eager to hear from Anna. She's in town, partnering as we've been praying for her with the farmers in Indonesia. And she is supporting the work of Jonathan and his family and Sarah by schooling the children. She has her own ministry, of course, and her own right, but she's a strategic player in the work of evangelizing and church planting in that place. So not every missionary must do all things in the same way to the same extent, but this is the work that Jesus has called us to. Third, what does this require of the church? Well, missionaries who will eventually go on. What did Paul do after the church was established and churches were strengthened? Well, through prayer and fasting, they were committed to the Lord in whom they had believed. And of course, he went on. He left. Now, he may circle back again, but he's entrusted the work to the Lord. For all intents and purposes, they're good to go. Struggles ahead, yes, but with local leadership and with the gospel that they've received and are proclaiming, they have what they need now to propagate the gospel in their own place without the apostles' immediate help. Now, how does this affect how we, we pray together? Well, we pray for churches to be established among the least reached who will take responsibility for the mission that Jesus has called them to, the same one that we're fulfilling, and extend it themselves. How does it affect our plans? Well, we plan, theoretically, I say, because it can take many, 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 many years and outlast us. But theoretically, we are committed to letting go, working ourselves out of a job, if you will. One day the Riyal Malayu won't be receiving missionaries. We won't be sending there because they will have an established church that can carry on its own work in maturity. And we will devote our limited resources to other places until the Lord comes. And what does this mean for our partnerships? Well, it means that in our partnerships with missionaries, we're looking for those, yes, who are comfortable doing risky things, as uncomfortable as that is, but for those who are not going to get so comfortable where they land. Here's how this looks when it's too comfortable. A church is established, and now no one would put it this way, but that church, established as it is, and the ministry among the church, and being needed by the church, becomes the means by which to raise support, to stay on the field to be in the place they love among the people they love because that has become home. Friends, if you're going to go out as a missionary, this world is not your home. Make home where you go. To the Jews, we become like the Jews. To the Greeks, like the Greeks. Nevertheless, the work, our work, is to work ourselves out of being immediately needed. And so we partner with those who understand this. And fourth, what will this require of the church? Missionaries who go back where they came from. Verses 24 through 28 is Paul and Barnabas going back where they came from. Back to Antioch, who sent them out. And they remained there no little time, it says. And they reported all that God had done 
with them. There is in the story of Antioch, the sending church, a story of a church that takes responsibility for its global commission. That commissions its very best people and sends them out with a defined task and then receives them back. That has accountability for them. That takes responsibility for those whom they send. There is an important place, for example, for parachurch ministries and agencies to fill in a gap of expertise of all kinds. And mobilization mechanics of all kinds that are very difficult for the local church. But much of the American church, and it is very easy to do, has not just like a business owner stepped back and hired the management out, but has stepped out altogether and hired the ownership out so that those whom we send are no longer ours in the long term, but the church becomes a funding source for their mission that the agency owns or their mission that the missionary owns. We are the owner of the mission. And we send those out who carry that out with us and on our behalf. Now, a few clarifications here. Well, first about how this affects our prayers. Well, we pray for those from within our body to go out in partnership with us. And we, and we plan. We plan in ways that avoid the ditch of individualism. Merely individuals identifying a mission and saying, church, affirm it, and then individuals going without it being true partnership. Or institutionalism, where it's, where it's outside institutions directing the ministry of the mission and the local church, merely funding and hard to say merely praying, but our responsibility is greater than that. And then in terms of our our partnership, well, there's a helpful paradigm that's been established that can help our church and us even explain and understand how it is that our focus ends up in one place or another and how we divide our time and our prayers and our attention and our money. Because something has to direct our budget in terms of missions besides what's exciting to us in the moments. We have a good theology here and strategy here. You can think in terms of three Ps. There There are people that are our people or those closely connected with us who are in close align with our aim. There are places that are particularly strategic for our church to which we've committed in align with our aim. And then there are projects which make, which, which are especially strategic in advancing our aim in those places through our people. So three Ps. There are some whom we will own. This is missionaries. Who check all three. It's, it's our people in a place we've committed to in a special way in a particular work that we're ourselves devoted to. There are those we might catalyze and cheerlead for and encourage, and those might check two boxes. Our people who have gone out to a project or to a place that aligns with our mission. But it's different than really deep shared ownership. Then there are those we would bless along the way. People we meet and works we come in contact with that we may... We may bless them with a one-time gift. And it changes how we pray as well. We don't pray in the same way to the same extent for all those with whom we have partnered over the years. 
And that's our responsibility because we have a responsibility like the church at Antioch to a particular work. More on this in the months and the years ahead, but let me advance to the the third division here. What is it that God is going to do with us? And that remains to be seen. Look down here in verse 27. It sure is encouraging to be able to ask it that way though. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, so Paul and Barnabas are back and they gather the church. They declared all that God had done with them. Not like in verse 26. They sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So there in Antioch, they were commended to God's grace for a work that they needed God's grace to accomplish. And it was the work that they would fulfill and they had fulfilled the work and now they were back. And yet verse 27, when they arrived, they gathered the church. And what did they do? Well, they didn't speak of the work that they had fulfilled. It wouldn't be wrong to speak of impersonal first-person terms. Rather, they spoke and declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door to the Gentiles. Not just a door for proclamation and not just a door for new converts, but a door for the proclamation of the gospel, for the saving of sinners, for the establishment of local churches in that place that they might be strengthened to endure trial and tribulation and so enter the kingdom of God and fulfill Christ's mission until he comes. And with that, let us pray. Oh, Father, the great prayer of this sermon and this morning would be that we would own this leg of the journey in the mission that you have given to us, that we would be about the work to which you have called our church. And Father, we must assume that from Sunday to Sunday, there are Sundays, and perhaps this is one where one becomes convinced that they must give this a good look, or they must go. And so we pray to be a church that doesn't just preach and speak and pray about these things in theoretical terms, but is actually waiting for you to actually work among us so that we might get about the work, but even more wonderfully so that we might hear, declared, and declare ourselves all that you have done with us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.